Today, Joe and I are talking about his brilliant comrade, the late Nick Meglin, who co-edited Mad Magazine from 1985 to 2004. And we delve into the use and misuse of mind-altering substances for the purpose of spiritual and comedic attainment. I'm Rod Mead Sperry. Welcome to episode 10 of After the Laundry, The Misery. Hello, Rod. How are you, my friend? It has been a while. We've been on hiatus. Is that what we've been on? Hiatus? (laughs) Well, we've been on summer vacation. Okay. You've been high on hiatus. Yes. How are you doing? I'm okay, I think. I mean, I don't really know. (laughs) I think I'm okay. I'll be dead very soon. I realize that. So I'm, uh, yeah, I'm trying to uh, slow it down a bit you'll you'll be dead very soon is this something oh, we should be talking about no no this is uh, something when i was uh in uh, a college student at adelphi university i remember uh, a friend of mine my old pal dave uh we were probably high when he said this to me he looked at me and he said we'll be dead soon and i thought yeah we will be <laughs> That's exactly right. I remember. I remember looking at myself in the mirror and and seeing wrinkles on my face and myself getting old. I'm freaking out, man. I'm freaking out. <laughs> so, Dave is Dave was your first Dharma teacher. Yeah, I'll be dead soon. I've been saying it ever since. <laughs> Excellent. You know, even if you live to be ninety, you'll be dead soon. Well, that's true. That's true. Well, where we could start, um, we could start with death and an old friend if you want we could talk about um being high these are both things that we could talk about um where do you want to dive in uh we wanted to talk we mentioned recently that we wanted to talk about psychedelics and that's a sort of a hot topic not least of all because the organization that i work for which publishes two magazines one of those magazines published an article about buddhism and psychedelics and that's something that uh, has caught some fire and has been the subject of a lot of debate. And that's something to talk about. And I know that that's something that you have some things to say about too. But uh, I'm also aware that you were at the memorial, um, not last night, right, but the night before, of Nick Meglin, kind of with Mad from the very start and became co-editor uh, with John Ficara in 1985. Correct. Uh, and was... Sort of an unsung hero, but William M. Gaines, the publisher of Mad, called him the soul and conscience of Mad, and he did a lot of things on, without a lot of credit, and uh, was a really spectacular and talented person. And just an all-around good guy as well. Gee, Nick started at Mad. I think Nick's original style was Ideas or Idea Man. I'm not even sure if it said Man. That was his original style at at Mad. And to understand Nick's influence and impact on MAD, he brought Mort Drucker to MAD. He was a proponent of Al Jaffe illustrating his own material. He was instrumental in Antonio Prochias getting to, to MAD. He uh, hired John Ficaro, who hired me. He brought Dick DiBartolo into MAD. I mean, all this, of course, while Al Feldstein was the editor, it was Nick, really, who was driving a lot of uh, of mad content then, and as uh, 
as is well known by anyone who knows Mad well, Nick for many years. This is not just true of Nick; it's true of of uh, pretty much all the editors who worked at Mad for a long period of time. He was uncredited for a lot of the work that he did. For example, the, that wonderful Mad parody of uh, Washington crossing the Delaware. Washington cross-dressing the Delaware. <laughs> yes. It was just something Nick tossed off and, and uh, became a classic mad piece. The famous mad sting cover uh, of the early 70s, which I remember. I do too. Nixon yeah. and Agnew. Now, that's a classic. For those who don't know that, that's uh, Nixon and Agnew as con men. Redford and Newman in the sting. That was... As as John Ficarra noted, that concept, that illustration was way ahead of its time uh, when it when it came out. The kind of humor that was, and that's still a great piece. Nick, it was his his brainchild. So yeah, Nick was uh, important. I'm going to say to Mad Comedy, I think in general, I love them. I love busting his balls, uh, <laughs> and I busted his balls a lot. <laughs> And he busted my balls back. Uh, I'll tell you something about Nick. Nick was a was a, a Tin Pan Alley guy. He loved Sondheim, and he wrote uh, lyrics to several successful uh, musicals. Most recently, the uh, the, the musical uh, Grumpy Old Men. And yes. So Nick was a lyricist, and he was a, he was a good lyricist, but he was really rooted in the American songbook. Not a pop lyricist guy, not a hip hop lyricist guy. He was a stickler for rhymes. They had to be exact rhymes. He despised off rhymes, and he had a particular disdain for the John Lennon song "Imagine." He couldn't stand the lyrics to imagine the, the idea that Lennon rhymed one with one uh, the, someday you'll join us uh, uh, and the world will live as one he's rhyming one with one there Nick despised that song and he would criticize Lennon frequently and of course I produced the annual John Lennon tribute and he would take the light and 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 I just got sick of this. I just got sick of it. So I I didn't have any. It's not a rational response. I, whenever I saw Nick, for many many years, I would just start singing the worst song from Funny Girl I could think of, and it was the song that Omar Sharif sang to um, Funny Girl to to the Barbara Streisand uh, character, and it was uh, I would just launch into it. The, you a woman, I a man. You are weaker, so I can be stronger than. Doesn't take more explanation than this. You a woman, I a man. Let's kiss. I would just, <laughs> I would see him. I would start singing it. I would torture him with it. Um, it's a strange kind of warfare that was going on, and I, and I, and from that point, I just started making up songs about Nick. For example, <laughs> I would, I would walk into his office, and I'd start dancing and singing. If I were Nick Maglin, la da 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 da
somewhat popular around the same time Microsoft Word was just getting popular. And of course, Microsoft Word obliterated Word, WordStar, but Nick relentlessly clung to WordStar. So I would sing to him, when you work upon WordStar, <laughs> Nick Meglin is who you are. When you work upon WordStar, folks laugh at you. So I was constantly singing at Nick um, and annoying him. At. <laughs> <laughs> And he's busting my balls about the uh, uh, lyrics to Imagine. And, uh, you know, so much of the uh, of our our cracks and quips and uh, the insults flying back and forth were not all that funny, but we laughed at them anyway. Nick was, as someone pointed out, was unintentionally funny. Like there was a time the uh, rock star D. Snyder visited the mad office and Nick walked around introducing him as Alice Cooper. <laughs> oh not, man! Really, really not knowing. <laughs> That's pretty good. That is pretty good. <laughs> I mean, that that is really, really good. <laughs> you know, if Nick, if you were writing a sitcom, Nick would be a great character. He'd be, he's the, he's the kind of guy you'd expect at Mad. Uh, his office was a was an absolute disaster of papers and clothing and piles and envelopes we would throw trash in nick's office we'd walk by and just throw trash in it crumpled up pieces of paper because he wouldn't you couldn't tell so it wasn't disrespect it was commentary it was, it was so yeah yeah so he had a he had a long long beautiful run um and Gaines loved him uh, we all loved him as, as, as well. And he, he was, you know, one of the people at mad that really set the tone for the place itself and for the, and for the kind of humor that, that mad is famous for. He, he Nick really was one of the creators of the, of the mad voice. Mm. Now that long, beautiful run that you talk about at the end of it came in June, uh, when Nick died at 82, uh, and was marked formally last night in a memorial, like what? Not last night, the night before. How was it? Was it reverent? Was it funny? Was it? You know, it was mostly funny, irreverent. It was not a solemn affair. I mean, there's always solemn. There's always some solemnity. Is that a word? Solemnity? Sure. Okay, I'm going to say <laughs> so. There's always some solemnity. I remember when, when Bill Gaines died years ago at his... Uh, service uh mad photographer of many years irving shield got up and said a couple of you know pious things about the afterlife and bill and we were all we all busted irving's balls about it afterwards because bill was an atheist he didn't buy any of that stuff and we we you know we don't like piety when someone that mad dies we, we 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 really like to keep it funny and silly. And there was a lot of that last night. So uh, a couple of nights ago, excuse me, I keep saying last night. So when Charlie Kochman, who worked on Mad, Mad Books for uh, many years and was a dear friend uh, of Nick's, got up to speak about Nick, he started by saying, fuck Nick Meglin. And, <laughs> and that, was how, that was how he began. Uh, there were some fond remembrances as as well, and uh, several of Nick's collaborators from the uh, from the uh, uh, musical portion of his life did uh, you know performed a couple of his songs, serious songs, ballads. 
very, very talented. So that was part of it too. But really the thread of the evening, I would say, was fond and very humorous. So does this, something like this end up functioning as a sort of de facto reunion? Yeah, it, it does in a way, uh, you know, because uh, the former man staff was together was with John and, you know, and Charlie, Charlie Cadu and Jacob Lambert and Dave Croato and Dick DiBartolo was there and a bunch of writers were there and artists were there. So, yeah, it was a gathering of former staffers as as well. And uh, one of the new editors was flown in from California and she was there as as, as well. So, yeah, it was a uh, it was a gathering of mad people. And by the way, I guess we haven't made this clear. Nick himself was not aware of this. He he was dead. He is dead. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so he didn't have much to say the other day. He didn't, he didn't have much to say about this. So, you know, there's that. If I was sad about anything, it was it was that that these things, you know, tend to we all come together. And I went to a couple of people and I said, listen could you pretend that I'm dead now and just talk about me for 30 seconds so I would hear what you'd say? I think it's really worth going out of our way to appreciate people while they're here. Yeah, so do I. When I die, it is my wish to have my corpse shot out of a cannon. Nice. Yeah, it would be good, wouldn't it? And my original vision was that it would be an interactive funeral, that where I land my friends would gather with shovels and bury me there. So no target. Just shot out of the air where I land, bury me. But here's the thing. It's not that simple. I was told that that is illegal. You just can't bury someone wherever they land. That's, that's, that's not going to work. Maybe you could do it in some, in some states down south, but generally it is illegal. Another, my re- most recent thought is just have myself wired to explode in midair. Oh, that's good. That's good. It's like fireworks. Right. If you do it on July 4th, no one would even know. And I'm thinking even my enemies would come to that, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. Yes. I mean, the thing about Nick's memorial, you know, to make it about me, I realized I'm probably not going to get anything like this. That was upsetting. And I mentioned it to a couple of people. I'm sure they love that. (laughs) (laughs) Do you really care? No, not, not that much. I guess it's not that disturbing. Thank you. I used to have an old bit. This is a, a bit that my buddy Charlie Cato and I used to do in the pre-med days. Although something about this bit I, I like even now. We used to do it on stage. It was, a, it was a commercial for the Jason Cooper Funeral Home. It was, have, have you ever thought about death? Well, if you haven't, don't worry, because I have. My name is Jason Cooper, and I'm the owner of your New York, New Jersey, Fairfield County, Jason Cooper Funeral Home, and that's my job. What kind of coffin do you want? Wood, steel, fiberglass, or how about Tupperware with the handy fold-lock top? Well, whatever kind you want, you can get it at Jason Cooper. Just stop by our crematorium. It's located right next to the Carvel. And if you die within the next 48 hours, you'll receive a free slicer dicer. Remember, (laughs) at Jason Cooper, your loss is our gain. And then the Jason Cooper theme at the Jason Cooper funeral home. People are just dying to get in at the Jason Cooper 
funeral home you get your ticket to heaven we'll pick you out a coffin choose you a burial place we'll put you in a nice suit put a smile on your face you won't have to worry even though you're deceased when we get through with you you'll rest in peace at the jason cooper funeral home you'll be feeling no pain yes sir so remember our model which just happens to be your loss is our gain we really mean it your loss is our Gang, 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 gang. Oh man, the best line is we'll put a smile on your face. No, death is death is 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 funny. And then years later, you know, Charlie and I from Mad, we wrote a um we wrote a mausoleum ad parody. Think of something called Swindle Gardens. Yes, I recall this. So death, and of course, you know, there was a death issue. We did that mad one. We were bored at times. We had to do things to amuse ourselves. You, I know you mentioned the monkey issue, mm. but we 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 did a death issue as as well. It was a special, as I recall. So death, yes, you have to you have to mock death. <laughs> it's it. Anyway, we have to talk about death anymore. <laughs> I'm running out of funny things to say about it. I'm going to start weeping. I'm sorry. No, we don't have to talk about death, but death is slightly related to the subject, the other subject that we were talking about, which is psychedelics. And um, how so? Well, one of the one of the ways um, that it's related is that what we what not we I don't know why I'm saying we. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. There's been a bunch of testing related to psychedelics, and Ooh. and to quote this. Um, this article from this magazine, Buddha Dharma, that my organization, Lions Roar, publishes, uh, they published an article called The New Wave of Psychedelics in Buddhist Practice. And it's mm. talking about how a number of Buddhists, um, not a big number, but a number worth reporting on, is starting to experiment in a way with using psychedelics and psychotropics as a way toward glimpsing something like enlightenment. Now that's all up for debate. But in the testing that's gone on, there's been quite a lot of testing that says, well, first of all, to, to quote the article, multidiscipline teams at John Hopkins University School of Medicine, New York University, the Harbor UCLA Medical Center, the University of New Mexico, Imperial College in London, and the University of Zurich have all demonstrated that psilocybin found in magic mushrooms, MDMA or ecstasy and LSD can have positive results in treating alcohol and nicotine addiction, obsessive compulsive behaviors, cancer distress, depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorders, uh, including among military veterans. In addition, and I'm no longer quoting from the article, there have been a few stories about how people are starting to experiment with these drugs as a way to set a reset button in terms of how they feel about death, whether it's their own death or coming to terms with just the idea of death. With with their own death, that could be anyone, but also with people with terminal, in in the cases of people with terminal illness. And what we found is that, or what, again, why did I say we? What has been found is that a number of people report that it really does serve as a reset button. They gain some kind of insight into, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but let's just say what really matters and suddenly the fact that they may no longer be among us is not as scary a thing mm. 
and in addition, we see that there are all of these ways that it's, these things are seeming to be found to be, have positive results in treatment. And then there's the issue, which is a side issue, about whether or not Buddhists, this is an issue as far as the article is concerned, whether or not Buddhists should even be doing this because you could argue, well, and one could argue quite strongly, and some, certainly some have, that this is against what um, Buddhism teaches for we're all taught when we become Buddhists to adopt what are known as the five precepts, which are to refrain from the taking of life, to refrain from stealing, to refrain from lying, to refrain from sexual misconduct, and to refrain from intoxicants, which is rendered in many different ways. Don't cloud your mind, do not do drugs, don't deal in drugs. There's so many ways that this thing is read. So there's a little bit of play. If, if I have a beer, am, am I engaging in intoxicants? Well, technically, yes, but then again, so is a coffee. So there's a lot of debate and play around this. Well, let us remember, my friend, yes. that uh, reality is just a crutch for those who can't handle drugs. Um, I don't know who said that first. Um, I think that was first said by the back of a Volvo in 1978. <laughs> uh, you guys caught quite a bit of flack for these articles, yes? Well, I wouldn't say that we caught a, quite a lot of flack. I would say there was a lot of discussion. But a well-known Zen teacher went on the warpath about this article, saying, among many things, and I believe quite wrongly, that uh, this article was massively irresponsible, that it was unbalanced and included no dissenting voices and actually was saying that this is a good thing to do. Uh, there's most certainly dissenting voices in it. We were likened to drug pushers by this Zen teacher. Drug, this Zen teacher also said that our article killed Buddhism. Yeah. And I, also I, then attacked oh, a bunch, he attacked a bunch of people personally, calling them all manner of names. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there are always going to be people in any community, in any spiritual community or any religious community who are going to be against drugs at, at any cost of any kind for any use. Um, it was particularly interesting here because you've got, you've got a history. You've got a long history. I tell you right now, Magic Mushroom's been around a lot longer than that Zen teacher. They've been used for centuries. Well, that's all true, and I'm not. I can't, can't, and wouldn't ever argue against that. And nor I think if it's fair for me at all to speak for the Zen teacher, uh, nor would he say that. But what his argument is, and what other people's arguments are, though certainly not as um, voracious and vociferous as his, would be that that's all fine. But that's not what Buddhism would say. If you're doing this, it is not Buddhist practice. And, you know, there is something to that. But then on another level, there is a, there is a way in which one might respond, okay, but so what? Yes, well, uh, let me tell you why I think there is nothing to that. Okay. Go ahead. Um, who gets to decide what Buddhist practice is? It's like asking, who gets to decide whether or not you qualify as a Christian? This was a central question in Christianity and remains a central question in Christianity now. How do you 
know if you qualify as a Christian and who gets to decide. Are you only a Christian if you believe in the literal resurrection of Christ? If you believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus was a guy, he walked around uh, and then he was, you know, you know, you know, nailed to the cross. And three days later, he was walking again and having a cheeseburger. Uh, you know, if you if must you believe that minus the cheeseburger part to qualify as a Christian? Of course, the Gnostics would say, of course not. The uh, Gnostics came at the whole question of Jesus and his life in a, in a very different different way. And some in the Gnostic tradition interpreted the resurrection of Jesus uh, to be a symbolic thing, not to, be, not to be believed literally. Indeed, but the difference here is that these five precepts that we're talking about are so common, I think we can essentially call them universal. And so therefore to willingly, actively engage not only in the use of intoxicants, but also marrying them to Dharma practice and calling it Dharma practice, Buddhist practice, might be arguably akin to saying, I'm a Christian, but I'm all for being actively cruel to the poor. Hmm. Uh, I, this is a little bit of a stretch there, I think. I think that what you're raising, the point you're raising, is basically one of interpretation. And, and, and let's, you've even uh, hinted at it yourself. Oh, uh, indeed. You can, to some degree, hang it on the word intoxicant. Are mushrooms an intoxicant? Well, I, how do you define intoxicant? Is any use for any purpose qualify it as an intoxicant? What does that mean exactly? And of course, there could be varying, varying opinions on this, which is my point. So since you can interpret that differently, that means you can interpret the precept differently. Well, that's true. That one of the more popular renderings of this is that you won't, won't do anything to willingly cloud the mind. And this is another area of interesting interpretation so far as I'm concerned, because I don't really think the one beer or the one coffee clouds, clouds the mind. If the beer can be considered an intoxicant, certainly mushrooms could be too. But the question is, is whether or not what happens to you on mushrooms, and this is really, this is where the real debate, I think, is juicy in the matter of interpretation. Do mushrooms cloud the mind? Well, or do they actually help the mind to focus in a different way? Maybe it's different for different people. Let me, ask you, let me ask you this. Is sugar an intoxicant? I would say yes. It clouds the mind, certainly. There have been studies. Certainly. Is it against Buddhism to use sugar? Well, I don't think it's against Buddhism to use sugar, but I think that what, it's, what Buddhism is calling upon the practitioner to consider is that if you know it's an intoxicant for you, are you sure you should be doing it? Well, I think we all have to find our own way with that, no? Certainly. I, I'm suspicious of moralists. I mean, there are many stories, right, uh, about, about Confucius and Lao, Lao Tzu, right? Uh, Con Confucius was all about the law. Confucius says, right? He had codes of conduct, ways to live. There was wisdom in, in, in a lot of that, yeah, but... Lotso, he wasn't he wasn't much for codes, right? He wasn't a moralist. He was a mystic. You probably know a good Lao Tzu or, or Confucius story, but you know they you know, 
No, I, I, do, I assure you I don't. Oh, God, I'm sorry. I apologize to all listeners. <laughs> but, you know, they're, they're, they're all, and there's, and there's that in every tradition, right? In Christianity and in, 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 in Islam um, and in the East as well, there are always moralists and there are mystics. Well, you know, the mystic is a bit less concerned. Uh, as you and I have talked about before, it was one of my first, one of the things I remember about Alan Watts and this, you know, what Alan noted when I first started uh, uh, reading him is one of the main differences between East and West traditions is that Western traditions tend to be more concerned with uh, codes of conduct. and Eastern traditions tend to be more concerned with states of being. You can import that into any tradition itself. The moralists are more concerned with codes of conduct. The, um, the mystics are more concerned with states of being. Now, I guess it could be argued that even some Buddhist mystics could take the uh, point of view that mushrooms are bad and shouldn't be used and cloud the mind for, for all. I think it's kind of a generalization. Couldn't they be really good for some people and not good for others? And couldn't we just leave it at that? I mean, I think we could. Um, the Zen teacher that we're talking about uh, I had a series of back and forths with him, and what his argument was was that he believed this very, very strongly and was going to take a hard line because no one else would. I don't know. I mean, part of all of this is that all of it's an open question. I certainly don't think reporting on it in any way is killing Buddhism. Obviously. And I, you know, I think the main thing to do is to have civil discussions about these things. I mean, listen, I'm going, to, I'm going to import Christianity into this again because I'm coming at it from my own background and my own history. I think of Eucharist, okay? That's a sacrament. You're supposed to believe it is the literal body of Christ. And there you go. You, you go up there and you bow and you get the wafer and you, you know, when I was a kid, you weren't allowed to chew it. You had to put it on the roof of your mouth and let it just melt like a piece of candy. Or uh, a tab of acid. Or a tab of acid, right. <laughs> And I never, you know, fine. It was just, you know, this bland wafer. I always, I wonder now, is it, is it, I wonder if it's gluten-free. Oh, I guarantee it. <laughs> I guarantee it. So, okay. So they, there you go. I think of uh, mushroom as, as a living sacrament. It's, a, it's, it's alive. For me, for me, the wafer was always dead. It was Well, but the, that is because the wafer has no psychoactive content. Anything that happens from the ingestion of the wafer is the product of your mind doing exactly what you said, believing that it is the body of Christ. There's no way that you're going to take a dose of some drug and, you know, not have that experience if the dose is effective. My point is, I think that there's a lot to be said for a living sacrament. It's alive. Meaning you think that the psychoactive properties of the sacrament are what make it quote-unquote living sure okay it's what makes it alive it's it's not eating a it's, it's not eating some bland wafer that doesn't have any impact on you except what you bring to it yourself this is a living force and i would say uh I, listen i don't want to speak i don't want to speak with any authority about anything <laughs> always the best best move i find <laughs> you know, um, that said, if you read books like Doors of Perception or um, the, uh, Alan's book, The Joyous Cosmology, these, I'm going to call them masters in some way. 
have have experimented with these drugs. I don't even like calling them drugs because it's it's not the right word for them. It's it, it, drugs conjures up something else, you know, Zolestro, or you know, uh, something else. It conjures up a prescription you get. These aren't drugs. These are sacred plants, or they're living plants. Whether you want to call them sacred or not, I guess you can debate that as as well. But calling them drugs kind of diminishes them, I think. You're you're not against them, clearly. Are you for them? Hey, listen, I'm, I'll go back to the Buddhist practice here. You know, one of the main things I've learned in practice over the years is what matters a real lot is intent. What's what's your intent? Doesn't that really change the experience tremendously? Doesn't that inform the experience? I'm for responsible use of drugs and sacred plants, period. I think that they I think that all drugs and all sacred plants can be misused or used responsibly in a way that's beneficial. The the same drug that can kill your pain after you get a tooth pulled can kill you if you don't use it right. That's fine. I think just as one would say, it's probably not a good idea to do mushrooms and then go for a drive. Yes. Likewise, what Buddhism could be saying and would have been saying from essentially the very start would be, it's also not a good idea to ingest mushrooms and do Buddhism. And do Buddhism. I love that phrase. (laughs) Well, Buddhism. Well, this precept basically is arguing that's not part of what we do here. It messes up the project. Now, we don't have the benefit of being able to say to the Buddha, hey, did you mean mushrooms too? We don't know what he did or didn't mean. Right. But if, you, if you're trying to stick to these commonly held precepts, you can make a very strong argument against. That doesn't mean that using mushrooms in all of these other ways isn't perfectly fine. But the question is, is whether or not to use them in concert with Buddhist practice is a misuse. You know, uh, in one of the articles, one of those articles, Shugen was Shugen Arnold, who is Jeffrey the, Shugen Arnold of Zen Mountain Monastery. Yes, he was he was quoted quite extensively, and I read what he had to say with interest. If memory serves me correct, one of the pieces ended with a, a quote from from him. The closing paragraph right, right. of the piece in Buddha Dharma called The New Wave of Buddhist uh, of Psychedelics in Buddhist Practice. Right. Shugen Arnold recalls a recent conversation with a Dharma student who had decided to use psychedelics. Quote, my response was, that's your decision, end quote, says Arnold. I said my hope is that if anything good comes out of this, you'll be able to turn that into your practice so that you move toward not needing to do this anymore. In other words, if it serves some purpose, then so be it. But its purpose is finite. The goal is to let go of that and be able to rely entirely on your own resources. A comment I would agree with. I think I agree with it. Um, to, to rely on your own resources. Yeah, I, it's, that sounds right to me, although it, it does make it clear that from Shugan's point of view that using the mushroom is not relying on your own resources. That, and True. I, I wonder about that. Uh, what's interesting to me about Shugan's comments here, as a practitioner at ZMN, of, of course, the former abbot at the monastery and my friend, Ryushin Markai, um, 
one of the things that uh, Ryushin was doing while he was abbot at the monastery that was somewhat controversial is that he was introducing shamanic teachings into some of his talks. Yes. So that this was a controversial issue even years ago. Um, oh, sure. So, you know, I, I like what you've been saying here and, and it, it, it resonates with me, but I, that particular phrase, the goal is to let go of that, that meaning the use and be able to rely entirely on your own resources. Yeah. So, so it, it almost, he's, he's suggesting, um, that at best from his point of view, that mushrooms can be training wheels, spiritual or psychic training wheels. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he, and I would say that I think it's great that he's acknowledging that he's not being moralistic about it and saying, absolutely not. You know, I, I can't comment on this with any authority. I could, I could only say that I think that mushrooms, obviously there's a long storied history here of their positive use, whether it's in the context of Buddhism or not. Mushrooms, acid, and ayahuasca, and well, I, I, you know, I, I, you know, acid, I put in a separate category because it's, you know, it's made in the lab, right? Um, I, I do too, but I've never used it, and I wouldn't really, I don't really know it. I used it. I remember my first acid trip. I, I was in college, had no idea what it was. I just took acid, and I remember, you know, after twenty minutes or so, not much was happening. I didn't think anything of it. And I, I got into a closet and I bent over to open a bag of potato chips. And you never have you ever like had one of those bags of potato chips that you really can't open? You're <laughs> pulling this thing apart and you just it, it won't open. It's like hermetically sealed. I'm wrestling with this bag of potato chips, fighting with it, and finally I just, I just like rip the thing open. And the moment I rip it open, I am blasted with the the overwhelming aroma of intense potato chips. Suddenly I'm in potato chip land. It is, it is potato chips are floating everywhere and <laughs> salt, you know, it's raining potato chips. It was very nice. That was before the telephone cord turned into a snake and tried to eat my balls uh, a few hours later. But until then, the trip was going fairly well. <laughs> Were you enlightened? Oh no! Oh no! I was I was deluded beyond measure. It was one of my two uh, two acid trips in college. That was it. I feel like we could talk, Joe, about this subject. We've talked about it for a bit already, and of course, also talking about Nick, uh, Nick Meglin. Um, and I think that in time we will come back, and maybe we'll hear a little bit more about your views on these things from a really personal place. Yeah, <laughs> um, but. Taking it back to Nick and, and Mad, there's a very popular idea of what life, particularly in media culture, was like in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, well, and even today. What was the, I mean, what was the Mad view on drugs? Well, the the Mad guys, they were straight as arrows. Nick never smoked pot. John Ficarin never smoked pot. Al Feldstein, these guys were straight arrows. Uh, William and Gaines was a big wine drinker, right? Yeah, wine and food, but not not drugs. That was the weird thing about those guys. They're very straight-laced, uh, yet they were kind of embraced by the hippie culture because Mad was uh, famously against the war, but Mad was very strongly anti-drug. And um, 
anti-smoking, anti in a way, they, uh, in a way, anti Woodstock vibe, and uh, that has something to do with comedy. I mean, it gets mixed up in comedy because there's a long tradition, of course, in comedy and pot, just like there is with music and and pot. I could tell you, I got high while working at Mad once. Uh, it was early in my career. Uh, it was during lunch. I went out. I got high with a friend, and I came back to work. And I was useless, utterly useless. And the reason why I was useless is because everything was funny to me. Right. I, and that's not good for a comedian. <laughs> that is not good for a comedy writer. I'm seeing the humor in everything that happens. And I'm laughing at everything that happens. And I have lost my compass totally. That's right. You just got a one-person context. That's right. So, so Were you pitching terrible ideas? I, I you know don't remember about pitching terrible. I probably was, but again, I found myself that I was useless. It was like in my cab driving days, you know, I would occasionally someone, one of the passengers back then would give me, they, they would get high with me, if you believe it or not, they'd let the driver get high and I would enjoy it. But the, but the problem was as soon as they get out of the car, I had to stop and pull over. I couldn't work because <laughs> I, I lost my aggression. I wanted a sandwich. I couldn't, I couldn't make money. So, so the idea of work, and, 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 and any hallucinogenic or psychotropic drug, particularly if the work calls for being aggressive or being funny, no, 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 no. So, so the mad guys famously straight, famously straight for all those years. Do you ever go on stage massively under the influence? Oh, yeah. But that's a whole story, man. I was, I was pummeled. The time that you were actually thrown tomatoes at? Yeah, I had, I had smoked <laughs> little weeds before I went on. Yeah. And was it the same thing? Everything you thought you were hilarious? That could well be uh, baked, baked in there. I thought I was at least okay, but I was horrible. That, oh, that, that cured me of be, being, getting stoned and going on, on, on stage. Hmm. Okay. Where do we go from here? I just need something to go out on. Uh, well, I don't know. What could we go out on? Um, listen, personally, let me tell you something. I think that this particular episode of the podcast should have an abrupt ending. There you have it then. Till next time, visit joeraiola.com for more from Joe. And for more from me, Rodmeet Sperry, and my colleagues at the Buddhist magazine and website, Lion's Roar, check out lionsroar.com. Thanks for listening to After the Laundry, The Misery.